Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Many companies these days promise their customers and employees they're doing something to go green. In addition to product labeling and advertising, corporations are increasingly doing business in buildings that more efficiently use energy, water, and other resources. In the next hour, we'll explore how some of the biggest architecture and construction firms in the country are helping American businesses reduce their carbon footprint. Buildings account for about a third of all energy consumed in the United States and about a third of America's carbon pollution. In China and other developing countries, mind-boggling numbers of new buildings are being constructed that will have even bigger disruptive impact on our shared global climate. Here with our live audience in San Francisco, we have four executives who design and construct skyscrapers with their own bare hands uh, and design other buildings uh, around the world. Michael Dean is Chief Sustainability Officer at Turner Construction, based in New York. David Gensler is Executive Director of Gensler, the country's country's largest design firm, which is headquartered here in San Francisco. Craig Hartman is a design partner with Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, or SOM, a venerable architecture firm. And Phil Williams is Vice President of WebCorp Builders, which is building the Trans Bay Terminal nearby and many other buildings. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, let's go alphabetically. Uh, I want to get you to introduce yourselves, where you're from. Uh, Craig, let's begin with, with you. Uh, you're here from San Francisco. Tell us about uh, your home and what kind of energy uh, footprint your own home has. Well, that's, <laughs> that is a very private question. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but um, I think our... Uh, our footprint, happily, is, uh, is fairly small, I think. We actually, we live in Marin, so that's, a, that's maybe a slight embarrassment. We don't, I can't walk to work. I work here in the city. However, I drive an electric car, a Leaf, back and forth. Um, uh-huh. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we power our, our entire house with uh, photovoltaics on our roof. So we are hooked up to PG&E, so we, our only evidence of this power is the reverse turning of the, of the meter. But uh, nevertheless, uh, that's our, our kind of lifestyle, and... and uh, and my daughter who's here and my wife are extremely uh, concerned about the amount of water we use. So brushing your teeth, you turn the water off very quickly and those kind of things. But so, uh, yes, yeah, that's, uh, that's a kind of a quick synopsis of, of my Great. personal lifestyle. 
Uh, and David Gensler, you're from Los Angeles. Do people conserve energy in L.A.? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm, I'm from Los Angeles, but I actually probably have a, a fairly large carbon footprint because I fly most of the time. Mm-hmm. I'm on the road 150 days a year. We have 43 offices around the, the world. And so uh, this afternoon I leave for Doha and uh, come mm. back, and then I go to Dallas and I'm all over the place, so my carbon footprint is not quite as low as yours. I apologize. Air, airplanes are big. But it's public transportation. <laughs> That's an interesting... And there are uh, interesting facts about how little, uh, apparently, per passenger these things... Uh, the plane would fly anyways, even if you were not... Well, that's what I say. Yeah, I've absolutely. never been on an airplane that wasn't yeah. going anyway. <laughs> and and uh, Michael Dean, you're from New York. Tell us about uh, your, your uh, energy footprint. Wow. Yeah. Um, I live in a... a, a Colonial house that was built in 1930, and uh, it's got a great roof that faces dead south, and I've always wanted to put solar panels on it. But instead of going for the green bling last year, I had insulation blown in because it had no insulation in any of the exterior. So around the walls and in the attic, and my um, heating bill went down by 50% instantly. So that's a, that's a, that was a good investment. Um, the other thing that I do is I yell at my children to turn off the lights. It was a trick I learned from my father. Um, and And... Other than that, if, if we can take a minute, when my kids are teenagers now, and when they were little, uh, and they found out about my job, and they, they said, Daddy, your job is to save the earth, right? And I said, yes, girls, it is. And, <laughs> and, and, and so then my oldest said, so that makes you a hypocrite, right, Daddy? <laughs> because of the discrepancy between what I say and what I do. So, so none of us are perfect, but we try and yeah. recycle and all that stuff. Me either. Phil Hartman, you're here in the Bay Area. Yeah, um, Phil Williams, I live on in Walnut Creek. Sorry. That's fine. Yeah. I've got one of those, you know, pick your climate, you know, in terms of the Bay Area. Uh, we're a little bit like a mixture of here. We've got a nice, you know, late 60s uh, rancher that told of a different era. I actually have a bomb shelter in my backyard because it was built in 1963. So you know, depending upon which era you are in, there are various, you know, issues, but they're all important ones. We've done uh, more like a combination, uh, a little hybrid on the car, re-insulation, re-windows, uh, turned off the uh, heating on the swimming pool, you know, figure a, a good risk component works. And so uh, a little combination of everything. All right, so there's, there's your, where we've got your green cred here established. Let's talk about LEED. That's a term that a lot of people hear. Many people may not typically un- understand uh, what it is, and then we'll talk a little bit about sort of the, the pros and cons around LEED. So Craig Hartman, briefly describe... What is LEAD, the Leadership and Excellence in Energy and Environment Design? Yeah. You're asking me to describe yeah. this. All right. Well, <clears throat> well, I'm sure 99% of the people in the audience can describe this better than I, but nevertheless, uh, so you in the audience know that uh, LEAD, uh, Leadership and Energy and Environmental, environmental Design, design yeah, see, we talk about uh, is, uh, is, a, is a kind of a prescribed uh, list of, of things that one can do to design buildings intelligently in a very holistic way to look at energy consumption, water consumption, where the building is placed, how it's oriented, uh, what kind of innovation you can bring to a building in order to make it uh, uh, perform uh, better from the point of view of, of energy and water consumption. Um, and then out of that uh, process comes uh, a ranking much like the Olympics, almost, uh, where you're lead certified or lead silver or lead gold or lead platinum. So it's a very um, easily, perhaps not understood, maybe the, the mechanics aren't so well understood, but certainly... These, the branded uh, steps of, uh, of certified through platinum is something that's very easily, I think, understood by many people. Uh, and it's, uh, so it's become a very uh, common uh, kind of a metric or yardstick 
for the performance of buildings specifically, but now uh, happily also has gone much broader than this to uh, large-scale neighborhood uh, developments, which is where the real positive, the major impact can be had, is where you think not just about the building itself, but where it's placed. Uh, is it, uh, can you walk from your office to your, unlike me, to office in your house and so forth? So uh, is a, as you know, uh, it is a measuring uh, uh, metric system that can be used to uh, quantify or to begin to, to suggest how well buildings perform environmentally. Phil Williams, does it cost more to get LEED certification than regular? You know, there, there's a, there is a nominal fee that you have to pay to be able to do that. But, for instance, in, in San Francisco and in California, it's virtually the law, if not the marketing component for it. The design doesn't necessarily have to cost anymore. Uh, we're able to deliver LEED silver projects here in San Francisco at virtually no additional cost on the construction side. And many times gold is well within reach as well. And, and, in fact, it can't cost more to deliver gold office building in San Francisco because that's the building code that was established in, in January uh, that many people here, and including myself, helped write. It, it's not an arbitrary thing that comes from the outside. It's really an industry from the design, engineering, and construction. And I hate to use the word policing. It's really being responsible for the products that we build. So I tell people it's not bolted on. It's built in. It doesn't have to cost more intelligently use your resources, um, and, and it work, works very well. And one of the things that's interesting about it is is that we're fortunate here in California, but because we can offer a leadership position, it's really become the standard for commercial real estate. Uh, it's not about energy, and it's not about does it cost more. It's how is it, can I be competitive in the marketplace? Um, and it's been extremely valuable because new buildings drive existing building portfolios, which is extremely powerful. In the last three years, how many new buildings did we build here in California, let alone anywhere? But it, all it takes is one new building driving the existing building portfolio to also gain lead, because there's no one more competitive than real estate. And that's what I like about this business. David Gensler, what percentage of uh, buildings that Gensler designs are, are LEED? Give us a sense of the market percentage. I read recently there's 2 billion square foot of LEED certified uh, buildings in the United States. I have, sounds like a lot. I don't know proportionally what that means. Give us, put us uh, in perspective. I, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but I know we have uh, about 186,000 uh, million square feet of LEED certified buildings. Uh, we've got uh, $38 billion in construction that we've done. Uh, so we have a tremendous portfolio. We do 5,000 projects every year for over 2,000 clients. So our footprint in terms of the, the building, built environment that we touch is extraordinary, and we have a tremendous commitment to lead. We have more lead accredited professionals than anybody in the world. Michael Dean, let's get you in on this too. The, the market drivers, you know, is this something that's happening? Tell us, talk about the market drivers. Is this because tenants come around and say, hey, where's the lead certification? This building recently got lead slapped on it. Uh, so is that something that's become de facto in the market? Well, it really has. And, and, and as uh, Phil was mentioning before, it's virtually synonymous with Class A commercial office. And uh, people... Uh, USGBC did a wonderful job of, of the United States Green Building Council. The U.S. Green Building Council, which, which is the creator of LEED, okay. um, did a wonderful job of marketing it uh, so that it became synonymous with um, environmental performance and energy efficiency and water efficiency and healthy indoor environment. Those are all things that people want. Uh, so, so when they're told they can have that and and that a LEED building is a, a third party 
a certification of the fact, not just me saying my building is green, but some uh, independent entity saying my building meets certain standards, then people want that. Um, for the last four years now, over 50% of, of our work total across every market sector uh, has been lead. And last year it was 58%, and we do about $8 billion of work a year. So is LEED, sounds like it's an industry standard, but is it really the best standard, or is it just the best known? David? I don't think it, it is a, a panacea for, for defining what is a good building at all. I think it is, a, uh, it is a, uh, an accepted standard that we can all use to measure the performance of buildings, to strive to improve the performance of buildings. Uh, but it isn't uh, by any means perfect. It's, uh, it's got... It's, in effect, a proxy for performance. Many of the, the It has a point system, so you earn uh, points for every aspect of your design. Some points are probably uh, easier to get than others in terms of the economics, and so people tend to, to go for those kinds of points. Mm-hmm. Other points have much greater impact on the, the actual performance in terms of resource utilization and carbon footprint and energy and water than others. So it's not actually, I think, an ideal solution, but it is the one that we've all kind of standardized on, so it's better than nothing. So it's possible to have a lead building that it really isn't that efficient. I think, unfortunately, what we're finding is that many lead buildings that are uh, that, that are modeled to, per, to a level of performance that we expect don't turn out to deliver that level of performance because when they're operated, um, they, they don't have the outcomes that we anticipated. And one of the things that USGBC is doing now is starting to develop methodologies that will require uh, reporting, that will require ongoing monitoring of building performance and allow us to continue to enhance the performance in operation of the building. Michael, I think it's important to to understand, as has been said, that the lead rating system is a, a checklist. It's the proverbial Chinese menu. And to say that a building is or is not efficient because it's a lead building misses the point. Lead awards its certifications based on accumulating points, and you can do that many different ways. And some owners will uh, em- emphasize energy efficiency or water efficiency. Mm-hmm. Other owners will emphasize indoor environmental quality. Uh, so it depends on what's important to the client. Uh, and then, and then uh, it's also important what the budget is, and, and sometimes there are points that are achievable at a lower price point than than others. Uh, so there's different ways of talking about how a building is efficient. So Phil Williams, can lead be used to greenwash? Um, you know, you can get, I guess, the lowest level of certification that you if you needed to. But it's a pretty mature market these days, and I think since it's a, it's simple in its context, which is part of the reason that it works very well. Um, one of the things that we're seeing, though, is that even though it might be the U.S. Green Building Council, it is the de facto global standard. I think it really speaks to the value of U.S. engineering design and construction and architecture that we may not have been the first standard, whether it's BREAM or Green Globes, uh, but the fact is is that it creates a universal standard for property, which is important. I also think LEED recognizes that it is an evolving standard and is a consensus standard. It's not the most aggressive standard. I mean, you could have a net zero energy building. You could have a living building challenge building out of a Cascadia in the Northwest. And the good part is, is these standards try not to compete with each other. They recognize they each have a place in the marketplace. One of the things that I also like is that 
Lead didn't try to create new rules. They accepted the ASHRAE, American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Engineer Standards. And as new standards are developed for interior building healthiness and wellness or environmental product disclosures that really provide transparency for building products, it's maturing. And like anything, we've all got kids or we wish we were kids. Now, the fact is you get better, Right. And maybe you don't get faster, but you get better, you get wiser, you get more mature. And I'm extremely confident that LEED is still going to continue on its good trajectory and that it isn't going to get bogged down uh, with some of the, the other kind of politics because it is an NGO, and I think that's important. But the LEED was supposed to come out with a new version. It was postponed from this year to next year, and they're having some challenges yes. about how far, how much the industry can adopt at a certain pace. David Gensler? Well, look, I think they have a, a long-term aspiration to encourage and incent the marketplace to get better and better, and that's the right objective. How quickly they can go is a challenge, because if they get too far ahead of the marketplace, then the the market won't pursue lead certification. They won't mm-hmm. pursue lead gold or platinum. Everybody has a place in the marketplace. Some buildings are going to focus on getting the highest standard possible, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to do the right thing. And I think as, uh, Phil said, uh, you know, the long term, they will encourage and provide a, a, a vehicle for the marketplace to improve itself. Uh, long term, they want to be net positive. They want to be net zero. Right now, we're not there yet. As a marketplace, they're just far enough ahead that they force the industry to stretch to perform at a higher level than they would without them. And one of the weak points or critiques of LEED is that it's uh, it's sort of as a building is designed and built, not as it's operated. So let's talk about the operating results can be different than than the, who would like to take that on? Oh, yeah. Michael Dean? Well, it's huge. Uh, I always make the analogy to um, an automobile. You can build a, a high-performance automobile. And if I don't know how to drive it and I run it into a tree, I can't blame the car. It's me. I'm the driver. So what... what um, USGBC and LEED are recognizing is that it's not just the bricks and mortar and the mechanical systems. It's how the building is operated over its life and service. And so we're spending much more time thinking about that. Um, We're thinking about costs and benefits in terms of total cost of ownership, um, not just how much it costs to build it at first. And and, uh, in terms of operation, the energy efficiency, the indoor environmental quality, uh, and the water efficiency are going to be a function of how the building is operated over time. So there's there's more emphasis on measurement and verification and real-time interaction with the building to make sure that it's performing up to the standards that it was designed and built to. And that's a big deal to sort of operate. A, you know, it's easier to sort of, okay, building's d- designed, done, go to, got your stamp. But this is going to be more of an ongoing monitoring, auditing process. Yeah. Sounds more complicated. Commission, commissioning and operating a building is a complex system. And the, the, you know, the in-place community that has been used to operating buildings for the last 100 years um, is probably not got the skill set required to, to operate the buildings of the future. They're much more technologically uh, oriented. The, the requirements for a building engineer, uh, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago are different from what they are today. And to be honest, I, I don't think it's the sexiest career path. So you're not attracting, uh, you know, the top uh, technological talent to be a building operator, a building engineer. 
Craig Hartman? I think, the, I think the, the, however, the culture is moving ahead in this direction. And, <clears throat> and for example, policy does often drive these kinds of innovations. And certainly, I think it's true here in San Francisco, where we have, um, we probably are used to kind of living in a place that is pretty unusual in the rest of the world in terms of uh, the kind of grassroots as well as, the, as well as the political embrace of environmentalism. And so one of the policies that San Francisco's moving ahead with is reporting of energy consumption, water consumption uh, of buildings here in the city. So it's going to become uh, actually part of the process of owning and operating a building that you have to report these. And when, when this, these things are reported, when they're made visible, of course, uh, then the competition, you know, that's described, you know, really begins to kick in. You know, my building is a, is a Hummer and my, you know, the building is a Leaf or a Prius or something. So, uh, this does have a major, major impact in, um, I think ultimately in, in the sort of the acceptance and, and ultimately the, uh, codification of, of, uh, these kinds of systems. Uh, I'm just going to mention a little bit in, in, the fact is, is that I think we're at the stage when We've added a lot of technology, but they're independent systems and buildings. And I think we're about going on, on your analogy of a car. We're about to have a car that's really integrated, that's more efficient than it used to be, runs quieter, more efficient, less tune-ups. Um, and I think so as technology, and we're part of that here in the Silicon Valley, starts to merge these items, the buildings are going to rely less on Bob, the ex-Navy guy who ran the destroyer, to make this thing work, because that's how a lot of buildings are run today. It's personal experience. The building manager may come and go, but the chief engineer is the lifeblood of the building. I, I think that's some of the interesting part of it. What's even more exciting is that some of this monitoring and some of the lead work means that new technology migrates from new buildings to existing buildings, not the other way around. And to me, that's the exciting component, because that's the 98% of the buildings. We're just making the best buildings better when we go from gold to platinum. But the ability to take some of that wireless technology and add direct digital controls to a project that was built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that had pneumatic controls without disturbing the tenants or walking on their desk or pulling ceiling tiles. I mean, no one can tell me that wireless is a problem. Every one of us has a wireless device, whether it's a wireless mic or a wireless telephone, that we rely on for our lifeblood of business. That's where this building market's going, and that's where the technology-driven world, the lead world, the energy world, is really going to provide some platforms for stuff that we now consider, you know, our cell phone's now going to be a digital wallet fairly soon. That's what our buildings are going to turn out to be as we transform them Existing and new. And technology can do amazing things, but listening to this, I'm thinking about home entertainment centers, which we probably all have, and we probably, maybe we know how to operate, but they have features and functions and complexity way beyond what the average person can use. And think about, thinking about buildings that have all sorts of cool stuff, but people don't know how to use them. So how you, you're getting, can you get ahead of the, the I mean, culture may, of people? Maybe just right? a step back for a moment, beyond sort of uh, pre-technology, is that there are some very, very basic things about the way that we can design, we should design buildings that respond, first of all, to the way that they relate to the sun, the way that we either harvest sun's energy or simply uh, provide the best aspects of sun, heating in the winter, uh, shaded you know, uh, areas in the, in the summertime. The first thing is to design buildings intelligently so that they're passively designed to adapt to their environment. And then the bells and whistles come later. But I think we get wrapped up in this sort of extraordinarily high-tech you know, ideas about the way to make buildings perform. When in fact, it starts with the very basic, simple things. Starting with, by the way, uh, living unlike me in a city, walking to work, you know, having uh, dense, compact, walkable places, 
having buildings that are oriented the right way to the sun and the wind, those are the basic things we should be doing first. But why aren't they happening? If they're so basic, why aren't developers and city planners are already doing this? Because they don't think about energy and passive? Well, if you, look, if you look at around the world, there's some countries where they've always practiced passive uh, passive sustainable s- strategies in their designs. The, the materials they use, the orientation of the sun, the use of uh, air flow and uh, you know, trade winds have all been really important to many cultures. Um, we, uh, I think, in, in the West probably kind of dominated the environment and didn't have to consider that in a lot of what we our existing sitting plans. But if you look at urban planners today, they're taking that into consideration much more heavily than they did 50 or 100 years ago. I think. Yeah. I, I, Michael think, Dean? I, I think if you if you think about it, one way of looking at it is before the advent of mechanical systems, all buildings were essentially net zero buildings. Uh, and, and it's the classical study of architecture. If you remember when architecture was one of the fine arts, uh, I think what happened was we got enamored of technology and we realized that you could build a glass box and condition the space with machinery at a time when we weren't so uh, aware of and concerned with resource consumption and and the effects of that. And that now, um, uh, I remember a year or two ago at at Greenbuild, which is the annual meeting of the USGBC, all of the education sessions were about how complex and technically advanced buildings were getting. And I got to the point where I was thinking, don't show me that you can make it more complicated. Show me that you can make it simpler. Right. So I, I think if we can go back to a time when you, ca- you care about siting and, and thermal mass and orientation and natural ventilation and natural light, then you're going to get a better building. A, a colleague of mine uh, who's building a net zero building up in Sacramento um, said you can make any building net zero if you slap a lot of PVs on it, but it's not a very efficient way to go about it. So the first thing you do is, is you work as hard as you can to reduce the demand of the building, and then... Uh, in, in this project that, that uh, I'm referring to, it's for the Sacramento Municipal Utilities District. It's a 200,000-square-foot building, so it's a real building. Um, they're getting net zero for an 8% cost premium with a 12-year simple payback. And for an institutional owner, that's great. Um, and what they did was they maximized the efficiency so that the building starts out needing 50% less uh, en- uh, energy than a, a, a standard building. And then they cut their PV bill uh, by a million and a half dollars because they made the building efficient to begin with. So that's, I think, where we need to start to head. Is it is it ugly? <laughs> you know, it's a very handsome office building. <laughs> well, you know, but it is it is an office building and a, and a, and a facilities maintenance yard, a, so it's as good as you okay. can get with it. But that's that. a very important point because one of the first platinum buildings in California is also one of the most ugly. And I have to say that. Long term, I think that uh, sustainability starts with making buildings that are beloved by the community and making buildings that uh, 50, 60 years from now that those of us here will want to renew them, want to restore them somehow as opposed to tearing them down and starting over again. So that's a, that's a very, very important point. The other thing is just, again, back to this question about technology versus simple, passive thinking, is that a room like the one we're in, this is like probably a 20-foot high ceiling, uh, and you'll notice those squares at the top are really where the air, air conditioning comes in. So the air drops down, and it's, it is exhausted back to the same ceiling. So we have to air condition this entire 20-foot high uh, space to make those of us who are sitting down here in the lower six or seven feet comfortable. Now, that's, that's kind of a backwards way of thinking. So very simple uh, devices are what we call displacement cooling, where we actually introduce the cool air from the floor. Mm-hmm. We air condition, we, we cool only the lower 8, 10, 15 feet, 
that we're occupying, who cares what the upper, you know, 15, 20 feet, uh, 15 feet about? And so we're doing this more and more with, with buildings, uh, large public spaces like at the San Francisco International Airport Terminal. We did this uh, many years ago, and it consumes about 30% less energy than the other uh, terminals. I'm sure not the more recent ones, of course, are doing much better than that that David's involved in. But, but, uh, but the, um, Absolutely. <laughs> but the, um, uh, and the cathedral over in Oakland, the same thing. We're now doing this in office buildings, and uh, one that Phil's probably going to be building here shortly across the street, a uh, simple 20-story uh, building in which we are uh, dis- doing, using displacement cooling in every floor. The, f- the ceilings are 10 feet high. We are conditioning really the only uh, lower 7 or 8 feet of that. So we have 10 or 15%, uh, percent, maybe 20% of, of the volume of, this, of the space doesn't rise to the same level of conditioning or, or, or drop, in this case, to 70 degrees. Uh, so therefore, we're really only conditioning about uh, 80% of the building uh, while you're getting the, the, the value, though, of the light through the tall windows. So it's uh, these kind of just very simple thinking about the way you introduce air and, and, uh, and light into buildings is where we need to start with these things. And are developers seeing this, the people who build large amounts of uh, office space in the United States and elsewhere, do they see the economics in this? Is this the, the developers building? I mean, yeah, the, 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 whether it's raised access floor and displacement, it's really just like a car, a building is designed to have people in it and to do their work effectively. And now we just have more tools at our disposal, whether it's displacement ventilation, whether it's variable refrigerant, whether it's natural ventilation and daylighting. The fact is that we can reinvent old things and still keep the ones we've got. So now we've got the right tool for the right purpose, and we're not afraid to use it. Um, I think, I think the, the raw economics of energy right now are driving a lot of innovation. When you have $10 a barrel energy, it's a very different incentive to use energy efficiently than when you have $100 a barrel energy. And right now we all, I think, can feel a sense of uh, – Concern that it's not just going to be 100; it's going to be 200 or 250 dollars a barrel. But petroleum of doesn't really power electricity that goes into buildings. Right? Look, I mean, all the, the entire cost of energy is a, is a fungible market. It, you know, there is there is geothermal energy. There's but there's a you know coal and carbon. Uh, now a ton uh, of natural gas. Natural gas. There's all kinds of energy sources. But at the end of the day, the price of energy is a market that's that moves and ebbs to where the you know the most efficient. Uh, use of ener- the energy that we have at our disposal at the price that you can get. So you see, you know, a lot of people converting to natural gas now because it's much more cost effective. But there's still a tremendous amount of, you know, fossil fuels that are being pumped out of the ground and sent, uh, across the world to power cars and, and other things. When, when you have $4 a, a gallon for gas, people get more sensitive to the, to the, you know, the mileage that they're, uh, gonna get in, out of their car. They're not gonna buy Maybe a 12-mile a, a, a gallon uh, vehicle. They're going to buy a Leaf or a Prius. I mean, you saw that happen. So the market does play a role. The other thing that's happening is regulatory-driven uh, incentives and penalties that are driving us. So between the market and the regulatory uh, incentives and penalties, you know, we're seeing tremendous amounts of innovation that you wouldn't have seen, uh, you know, 20 years ago because there weren't those things in place. The economics didn't drive us there, and the and the regulatory environment didn't drive us there. Phil Williams. One of the things that, and I, I don't mean to change the subject, but I need to hear a little bit, I think, only because we've got a little energy-centric, and energy is a big part of where we see this process going. But one of the things that you've talked about, market drivers and energy and development, 
I think there's a big push on the consumer side. In the consumer, I mean the people in the buildings, about improving the equality of the environment, not at the sacrifice of comfort. I think you know part of this innovation and research is going to be the materials that we put in our buildings, the longevity of the materials, what's the sourcing of those materials, what happens when those materials get done. It goes back to the, you know, a little bit for design, a little bit more for construction, a little bit more for operation, and then the concentric wheel of what's the value that the product was put there to deliver in the first place, the productivity of the people. And that's where I see a huge push that is part of the sustainability component. Um, that's, yes, it's water, and yes, it's energy, and yes, it's gas and transportation. But we're, we're putting people in buildings where they're living a considerable amount of their time. And what I like about it is that, that it may be driven by the commercial world. It may be driven by LEED or Living Building Challenge or Red Lists or whatever those components are. But whatever starts in the commercial world migrates to the personal world, right? Computers were in your office before they were in your home. Telephones were in the office before they were in your home. And the better building materials are going to be in your office before they're in your home. And so the ability to all of us as professionals recognize that we have an obligation. Now, now we've, we actually have more work to do than we did before. And, and I think there's some standards out there that are going to be developing. They're going to be supplemental to LEED, go back to the LEED side, that are now going to give us visibility and transparency in building materials. And whether it's part of this concept of life cycle analysis, that's yes, it's about the energy, yes, it's about the water, yes, it's about how long it's going to last. Is it a disposable commodity? You know, what's in it? And when we're done with it, what happens to it? Um, Those are the kind of things that probably actually get me more excited because we've got the current standard, which I'm all in favor of, but we're rapidly moving to a much more comprehensive, much more transparent, much more decision-made data-driven process. And it's not judgmental. I don't, I don't think anybody should say this is good and that's bad. It's like Cheerios. I can eat the organic granola or I can have super choco. Cocoa uh, puffs? Yeah, <laughs> cocoa puffs. I can tell what I'm eating. I'm not saying which one is good or which one's bad, but now I know and I can make my own value decisions. And that's what we want to give to architects and clients. That's right. Definitely. Energy, obviously, we we focus on this question because energy is is the source, primarily our consumption of energy is the source of of carbon in the air and, therefore, greenhouse uh, uh, gases and and climate change. And So this is a a huge, huge issue for us as as a human species, obviously. But water is uh, equally an issue. Uh, And... The work that I think we're all collectively doing right now is focused on ways of intelligently using water to minimize the unnecessary consumption of potable water, uh, to reuse it as much as we possibly can. The city of San Francisco is very much a part of this as well. And, and to also pick up on Phil's point about uh, the other big step to getting toward, uh, we'll call it net zero impact, which of course is an aspirational idea and, and regeneration is very aspirational, but a uh, long way to get there. But but the idea that, that are the things that we make, uh, first of all, can um, uh, are of value for the long term for our communities. And secondly, uh, that they are adaptable to change and that uh, we can make places that are flexible for all kinds of uses. Um, and um, we are now writing manuals uh, not just for the way you operate your buildings from a from mechanical point of view, but also for, for example, in laboratories uh, we're doing at universities, uh, writing manuals on, on a, a system of, of flexible um, arrangements for the labs that can be easily changed without throwing things away, uh, and these, these pieces can be recycled. So the idea that we can recycle 
uh, components for our buildings without even necessarily taking them off-site is, uh, I think, those are the kind of things we need to be focusing on. Let's pick up on the resilient and flexible aspect of that. We're in an era now where the weather is changing, the climate is changing. Uh, we've seen some amazing droughts and storms around the world recently. So you're designing buildings that need to be around for 30, 40 years, and your assumptions about the weather in any particular place are going to change dramatically. How do you build and operate a building in the era, for the era of climate disruption, where things are going to get kind of squirrely? Uh, you, I, I'll start with you can't know the unknowable, of course. And, and what we've seen in the last few years, of course, is that what we thought about uh, weather um, patterns is, uh, is quite surprising. We, 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 we're surprising what we don't know. And uh, things about uh, I, the fact that we're now having more of a, of a snowpack in, in, uh, in um, Siberia, and that's causing all the kinds of disruptions. So I don't think we can say for sure in the next uh, 60 or 80 years what the weather will be like in San Francisco, for example. We have a great thing here. We have the ocean as our air conditioner. But nevertheless, we can't say for sure. But what we can do is uh, respond to uh, what we know and to uh, make buildings that can function um, – in uh, multiple uh, ways, and so we're designing our buildings now so that they are they can, they can breathe, but they also can work uh, with with these systems we've been talking about. And um, certainly, we even look here in San Francisco, of course, in California, at the the fact that our Earth isn't doesn't just sit still either. And so we have earthquakes, and so uh, the the uh, work that's going into the design of, of buildings now that can that can um, not only withstand but remain operational after a major earthquake is also a big part of what we're now doing, uh, both here and other places, China and so forth, where, uh, where everywhere there are, 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 are deflections of tectonic plates. You mentioned China. Where you look around the world, you all operate somewhat internationally. Where is the greatest innovation happening in building and ideas? Is it, is it in Europe? Is it in China's doing things that, at scale and pace that no one else is? Where, where are the things that are happening that are really exciting? David Gunther. Well. I think more is getting built in China than anywhere in the world. Mind-boggling. So, I mean, the, the, the statistics there are they're building a city uh, the size of a million and a half people a month. Uh, you know, so there's tremendous innovation. The quality of the construction is improving. The, the systems are improving. The buildings that you see that are being put up today are world-class buildings. And a lot of the 10, roads in China are better than the roads in the United States. <laughs> 10, 10 or 20 years ago, even though there was still a tremendous amount of activity, it was much more rudimentary. So I think uh, that's a marketplace that we're seeing tremendous innovation. And for a designer, uh, I don't think that's there's a better environment than where the world is getting built in the developing world, Asia in particular. Also, South Korea seems to be, uh, uh, from my experience, a tremendous hotbed for innovation, particularly in terms of technology uh, systems and buildings. Are you, you're doing the big airport there? In China yeah. Airport, yeah. Right. Others? Uh, well, I, I would say that, that Europe has been way ahead of the world <coughs> for the last, uh, you know, two or three decades in terms of policy on these matters. And, and uh, for example, even as like 25 years ago, uh, Germany had uh, uh, policy laws in which you could design an office building that would have no more than, I think it was uh, 25 feet, uh, from a, uh, an occupant of the building to, uh, to glass for daylight. And uh, so I think, so these countries have been way ahead in terms of policy, but in terms of, of actually implementation and making, driving innovation, no question, is where things are built. And that's right now in China, for sure. And um, so the first building that I did in China was uh, in 1993 uh, in Beijing. Uh, and it was, um, it was, is the Industrial and Commercial uh, Bank, Bank of China's uh, headquarters. 
at that time, after winning the competition to design this, we uh, we uh, started touring uh, the facilities and uh, and looking at what resources were available. So we went to the steel plants. The chairwoman of the bank won steel, so was opposed to concrete. She saw this as being a very modern idea. All buildings in, con- in China are made of concrete, basically. So uh, we started touring these plants. We found that all the steel was, was being used for tanks and for trains and so forth, not for buildings. Likewise, there was no glass being produced. And um, and today, of course, now it's, it's absolutely the opposite. Now uh, China is the font for uh, not only adaptation, but even production of these major systems. We talked about uh, the previous panel about uh, photovoltaics being produced there. So it's definitely, without question, because of the economic uh, activity there, it is the, the really a, a huge source of the ability to apply innovation and, uh, and out of that uh, have, I think, uh, production that comes out of it. Bill Williams? I like the definition of apply the innovation where the buildings are. And I guess I'm a little bit jaded. You know, we've been had the fortune to be, I think, in some of the world's great buildings right here in San Francisco in the last decade, whether it's the California Academy of Science, which is an architecturally beautiful building, double platinum in terms of how it was designed and how it's being operated with natural ventilation and with radiant heating and cooling and, and all kinds of good things, or the SFPUC, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission building here, which is operable windows, which is photovoltaics, which is raised access floor, which is you know, black water recovery, gray water recovery, uh, illustration of the energy and water consumption for the public to see. And I think if we're not building a million cities, you know, a day or a million people cities per day, the fact is is that we can still provide some of that innovation that others can leverage and, and look at. And I mentioned it before. U.S. architecture is still the most highly, one of the most highly valued export commodities that we have. Engineering, whether it's earthquake or sustainability, is still seen as great. I think the construction expertise that all of us has in international firms from the integrity, the delivery, and the reliability of U.S. firms, it's a highly exportable commodity. And that being here in Northern California or in New York or in Boston or Austin or in Cascadia, wherever you're talking about, it's not isolated. It's really an infectious kind of commodity. It's, it's important. One term that I'd like to use, and, and don't credit it to me because I saw it on a late-night television show, so I, I, I guess I can plagiarize as long as I tell people. It's a term called future-ready as opposed to future-proof. And future-proof means I'm going to build an eight-foot bunker and, and hunker out down and, and just pretend nothing's going to happen. Where future-ready is tough. It's like Craig said and like everybody said. How do we anticipate the unknown? How do we leave room for improvement? Because the part of the problem I always have, it's two years to design it and two years to build it. And in today's rapid chase uh, changing, it's almost like I feel like I'm handing over a set of keys to somebody and let me build the next one better for you. At the same time, I'm handing over a set of keys. The buildings last for decades. So I think our challenge, whether it's flexibility and occupancy, flexibility and controls, you know, uh, making sure that we've given good use to current materials so they can be someplace else. That's really the challenge that we're going to all face because we build legacies. It's not like I can change a fluorescent one into an LED. It's not, you know, three twists and I'm gone. Cars have a tendency to be disposable. Buildings, the kind of commercial buildings we're in, aren't. And I think that term future ready is one that we all really need to try to embrace in whatever term we call it. I'd like to pick up on, on the uh, U.S. leadership point. Uh, I've spent a fair amount of time in China this summer, and you know, 
I look at the big buildings, often designed by U.S. architecture firms, built by U.S. construction firms, and yet uh, there's pushback in the United States right now against some of this leadership. Uh, in particular, uh, the General Services Administration of the U.S. government has some baselines for lead, and there's some pushback against that, saying, oh, taxpayers shouldn't pay more for lead. Uh, there's pushback from the chemical industry against lead, saying, well, lead's going to hurt our business. So let's talk about this undercurrent that's pushing back on lead and all these things that we're talking about trying to Perhaps slow it down, Michael Dean? Well, um, by way of full disclosure, I sit on the federal GSA's Green Building Advisory Committee, um, so, uh, which, which, only means, which only means that I'm allowed to offer my advice to them directly. Um, uh, it doesn't give me any special um, privileges other, other than that. Um, the, the issues with uh, lead and the cost of lead or achieving it at certain levels, to me, uh, is, is misplaced. Uh, there was a federal defense appropriation, I think, last December uh, that said uh, the military could not build lead gold or platinum buildings unless they could demonstrate that it cost no more than a lead silver building. The fact is the Navy was just about to announce or had already announced that their new minimum standard was lead gold, and that was only after determining that it was it was a better value proposition and that, in fact, uh, it did not cost that much more. And it's, they, they, they own the buildings. They capture the cost over the life cycle. Right, so, right. So, so... Um, so I think it was it was uh, politically driven, and and the the impetus for the politics were uh, and I may I may go out on a little bit of a controversial limb here, but why not? Um, the chemical the chemical industry in particular has been um, very much against the pending version of lead that's going to come out next year because it for the first time includes credits that don't require but give buildings the option of disclosing chemicals of concern that have a negative human health impact and or avoiding chemicals of concern. And the chemical industry, and and this is the Chemical Trade Association, not the individual companies, uh, has come out against that and as a, quote-unquote, job killer. So in a sense, they're taking... They're they're picking money over human health, if you want to parse it in a really blunt way. Um, Where the intent of the credit is to drive the market to say, look, you've got... Um, products that you produce, many building products have chemicals that are harmful to humans in them. Uh, the idea is to come up with a functionally similar or better product that doesn't have chemicals that, that cause human health. That's the way to drive the market. That's the push for, for market transformation. And it has become, uh, um, th- that argument's been sublimated to an argument about uh, economics. And so now the chemical people are joining with the earlier industries that, that were uh, against lead for similar reasons, which were the vinyl industry and the wood industry. So, so there's this economic pull against environmental change when, in fact, I believe, and I bet I, I could speak for everybody here, that I think it's, it's not either or, it's plus and, that we, that we move the market by creating better materials. A group of companies in the architecture and uh, design uh, and, and construction sector uh, wrote a letter to the GSA saying, let's uh, keep lead. I saw Gensler on there. I did not see the other companies. I don't know if, if Weber, WebCore, and, and SOM and Turner were on there. The I chose to write an individual letter. I chose not to sign on to a form letter. Okay. But I did write a letter. And are the others, I mean, do you think that lead is something to uh, to protect or you don't want to get involved in the politics and the industry? 
It is <coughs> absolutely important. It's been discussed earlier in this panel that, that lead isn't necessarily a perfect end-all and be-all of itself. But absolutely the goals, the sort of long uh, trajectory of, of goals that are embodied in LEAD as one example are the right things for, for us as a country to be embracing. And uh, it's regrettable that things like the environment have become politicized. Uh, and that's the regrettable where we are at this moment in our democracy. But there's no question that this is uh, where we need to be going. And it's been, and the fact that as LEAD, as, as one metric, has been embraced very broadly in the marketplace as a, uh, a sign of um, a healthy uh, environment. And so we <coughs> see in our, in our buildings, our, our clients uh, are, are expecting this. And when it becomes expected in the general populace, uh, the government, if not leading, will certainly follow. Uh, we, uh, about uh, eight years ago, uh, <coughs> decided we had a meeting here in San Francisco, a convening meeting in Presidio, and decided that in our practice at least that we would do no buildings in the city of San Francisco that weren't at least a lead gold. And we thought we'd probably be turning away con- uh, you know, clients, probably lose clients or whatever. We didn't lose a single client. Uh, and as, as Phil said, uh, now uh, this coming year it's going to be a law anyway. So, and, it's, and frankly, it's not that difficult to achieve lead in gold in, uh, in San Francisco. But it has absolutely become uh, this an expectation of marketplace. I think Craig's point about the fact that lead is not the objective. The objective is to use our resources more intelligently. And I think, I, I don't know about SOM, but in our firm, we have a whole generation that is extraordinarily passionate about this issue. Rabid, you'd say. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a religious fervor at, at some level uh, about this issue in our younger staff, particularly for the last... 15 years or so, we've had this grassroots effort to have a higher level of commitment to sustainable design, to intelligent, responsible use of resources, to water, air, energy, uh, you know, in- intelligent design solutions. And, and it's, it's the history of design is to solve problems and to use resources intelligently. But right now it's heightened, in, in particularly in our young staff. I, th- I think people under 40 um, seem to be, you know, uh, very aware and committed to this. And so if you look at our standards, nothing to do with LEED. Our, our minimum standards for design are at a, at a very high level. We have what we call a green spec, which goes out with every project. Our, our vision is that if we can improve uh, our entire portfolio's performance, uh, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 percent above code, we can have a tremendous impact on the world, irrespective of whether we have a lead platinum or double platinum yeah. or anything. That's not the, the, that's not the way we're going to get to where we're trying to get, go. What we're trying to do is raise the bar for everything. And there will always be, you know, specific instances where we can stretch the envelope, but it's about raising the entire platform Together. Yeah. I hear your point that lead's not everything, but if lead gets slowed down and it's the industry standard, it could slow the industry Fair down. Well, Phil, I don't look for government to be a leadership. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I, 27% I, I, of, of the lead buildings, and, and again, lead is not everything, but mm-hmm. it is a standard. 27% of the lead buildings are public sector buildings. So it's yeah. A, yeah, but it, that, if you do the math, that means that over 70% are private, mm-hmm. that okay. up until recently weren't, in some very select areas, weren't even mandated. So the market is driving it. It's not just the small Audubon Society or the corporate one. And I think from that perspective is that it's nice that the government – I think it's important that the government does. I'm a taxpayer. I live here. I expect my dollars to be spent wisely over Mm -hmm. the long term. It's been politicized. The only thing that's been beat up more than the GSA is the EPA. 
And I think it's those initials that have a tendency to get political fervor, depending on which side of the aisle you're on. But, but one of the things, and I think everyone here embraces in a different one, we're not just building projects for other people. We're businesses. We have businesses. And, and I think as, as you do your work and as we do our work, one of the things that we're measuring is we did our carbon footprinting. We had an opportunity to look at our energy and the paper and where we fly. And, and then we did what we build. We recognized that WebCore's carbon footprint, our greenhouse gas emissions, 0.6%, just over one half was the operation of our business. 99.4% was what we built. And then how they use it. And, and, and so for our obligation, it's, is we've looked at that supply chain. And I think that's expanded past LEED. LEED has given us the opportunity to open our eyes, but it's not necessarily shown the spotlight on where our real work is as professionals to say, how do I build that square footage at half the carbon that I did before? Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. Um, any major builder, and, and I'd say any major architect can design and build um, lead buildings today. Uh, we've been doing that for 10, 12 years. But where I'm spending my energy, like Phil, is, you know, we just, we just made a, a carbon emissions reduction commitment that we set in 2006 for our offices. But, but looking at our field operations is manically complex, and we weren't even able to address it. Um, but our, our field operations, how we use water, how we use energy, how we use fuel, uh, and our supply chain, which is far bigger than our than our uh, direct footprint, is where the work is. And I think that's the work of the next 10 years, honestly. Michael Dean is Chief Sustainability Officer at Turner Construction. Our other guests today are David Gensler, Executive Director of Gensler, Craig Hartman from Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, and Phil Williams from WebCore. Let's have our audience questions. Yes, sir. Um, yes, gentlemen. Uh, the first question is, uh, well, only only question um, uh, all of your firms, uh, to some degree, I'm sure, uh, deal with building information modeling, and it's nothing new, but, you know, building smarts definition, not I've got Revit. How are you finding, what are the challenges you were finding of BIM as far as the process? And then how are you helping your clients find ways of using that data and upkeep all throughout the building's life cycle to get a max return on investment? I'll, I'll jump in the beginning. I mean, building information modeling started with us about three years or ten years ago with conflicts, and we rapidly evolved it to it's not just a colorful thing on a screen as an entity, so now we can schedule with it because now it's a known cubic yard of concrete. Where's it got to go? What steel is in it? Where's the concrete coming from? Where's the aggregate coming from? We do our material resourcing from it. We look at it for procurement. And what we're rapidly doing is also using these wonderfully coordinated drawings, the as-built, into facilities management models. One of the analogies that I use is you've got kids out there, the video games that they use in Madden 2012 have got more data regarding the NFL and players and the color of their cars and how much money they make and what their fourth down average is than we know how to run our buildings. So what we're doing is we're not looking at the building industry to supply this visual interactive tool. We're going to the gaming industry. I've got the data. I've got the model now to give my building engineers the ability to integrate that in real time and maybe give you some what-if scenarios and what the weather is today for tomorrow. They don't have to be Ph.D. Lawrence Berkeley lab guys. They just got to know what I do today affects tomorrow. I think it's that kind of integration of technology 
that's key. Not just what we build, but it goes to the design, the construction, and the longevity. I think that's where building information modeling is headed and needs to be. If John Madden joins the board of your companies, the meetings will be a lot more fun, that's for sure. Uh, let's have our next audience question. Hi. Uh, I know all of you, all your companies are, are leaders in your industries. Uh, what are you seeing as the, as the leading innovation that you're exporting either into the market or internationally? I'd say for us it's um, uh, net zero energy uh, is the current stand. We, we have a we have a, a, a small but growing portfolio of net zero buildings um, based not just on, on design calculations but on, on uh, building performance. And they range from bank branches to schools uh, to the municipal office buildings. And taking the lessons learned from those buildings and sharing them with other project teams and other uh, projects so that every building can benefit from, from the best examples that we have uh, is one of the things we're doing. We're also, um, I personally and I think a lot of us are very concerned about water. Um, so looking at that. But having a big portfolio of buildings where uh, you, you, can, you can take lessons learned from, from best practice. And right now, as I say, that's net zero energy. So I, I, would just, I would just add to that for a moment that um, <clears throat> it was mentioned that uh, I think Phil said that that uh, architecture in the U.S. is is a major export business without question. Now David and, and ourselves at SOM are doing uh, right now I think in San Francisco about half our work is in California and, and about half of it is in China and um, so we are definitely a major export business in that regard at least as architecture goes. Um, and I think in terms of what we are, are, I think, bring mostly to the table right now, in addition to the we've, – we've used basically San Francisco kind of as a petri dish because it, it's, a, it's a, a place that we can really uh, ex- do some experimentation and the government supports the ideas we're, we're doing. And so we're exploring many of those ideas to China, especially about the way you think about buildings holistically in their environment. So uh, all of us at this on this panel obviously uh, are designing buildings that – deal with the reduction of, of water and energy to the lowest extent we possibly can, moving toward net zero uh, at some point in the future. But equally important is to think about how these buildings relate to in the cities and how we make cities themselves that are um, performing at this very high level. And uh, so this is, I think, an area of focus that we are probably most uh, interested in right now in terms of how we can make the biggest impact. I, I think for us, uh, like Craig, the uh, the, the urbanization of the developing world is what's driving the export market the, for, for our designs. And, and basically, uh, they have to leapfrog a whole generation of evolu- development and evolution and capability building in their countries to get to world-class level design, to, whether it's the aesthetics, whether it's steel and glass, whether it's lead and sustainability. The whole package is what they are, are, are looking for us to do. And so what we've done is we've actually gone to China, we've gone to Korea and India and, and South America and Brazil and Costa Rica and, uh, in the Middle East and we've started to build, uh, our organization in those, in those countries. And we, we export design talent, but we also build, uh, communities that can, that can, you know, be made up of, of local nationals who will be able to design the future of, of their country. So we're, uh, slightly different than most, uh, most design firms in that we've been willing to invest in building a footprint in country around the world to help developing countries urbanize as they, as they grow and, and develop. Let's have our next audience question. Arthur Young, Communication Management and the Climate Reality Project. Um, 
as you know, uh, USGBC's lead protocol mandates reviewing every aspect of lead every two years. How do your businesses manage, monitor, and deal with change every two years in an industry that is far from simple? I'm going to pick up on my comment of future ready. What we try to do is allow that energy water to effectively be monitored. And I think because if you, if you had no fuel gauge, if you had no speedometer, if you had no oil light, go to the mechanic. And many times those kind of things are at handover at best. So that the ability to get independent commissioning, the ability to provide instrumentation is key. It's that future ready component for us. We're not in the building management business afterwards. And I think from a business perspective, one of the things that, that we're toying with, and I, I think maybe, I don't know if we should challenge each other. This is sort of that, I'm not going to bet, you know, uh, lobsters versus crabs versus corn ch- or clam chowder, but I think we ought to go to guaranteeing building performance rather than warrantying a building. And I had somebody challenge me. They said, Phil, what's the difference between warranty and guarantee? Warranty is repair or replace. Guarantee is satisfy. And I think that's our ultimate challenge is to satisfy the energy and the comfort and the water goals. And data is going to help us do that. But I also think this comprehensive design approach in that we all share in the outcome. And we need an owner here, by the way, because that's the other triad. I think three is a powerful number. It's nature's best resource. It's stable. You know, one leg you fall over, five legs is always rocking. Three is that perfect component. I think we need an owner here because they're an instrumental part of what we build and design and what they pay for. And I think that's where we can go to guarantee versus warranty. And that's where you get loyalty. And that's where you start to build buildings. We all have a longer than 18-month time frame, 36-month, 10-year payback. Good point. Next time we'll have an owner here. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, sir. How would you uh, recommend... Uh, fixing the controls industry. I think we, we're all familiar with buildings that um, built relatively recently. They're very high-tech. Uh, the panel talked about technology and controls earlier. And yet uh, the heating systems run in the middle of the night and they don't run during the day when they need to, and there's all sorts of problems. Uh, it makes me think of uh, the, the number of people who knew how to program their VCR in the 90s is about the percentage of building managers today who actually know how to control their buildings. Uh, one, a lead platinum space I've been in the, at the U.S. Green Building Council headquarters actually has, uh, you know, dynamic uh, shading that adjusts to daylight levels, and, and that thing has never worked right. Um, the, the staff absolutely hate it, and, uh, you know, there's glare, and there's, uh, you know, they're turning the lights on, uh, trying, to, trying to find out how to turn the lights on when, when the shades are down and they don't need to be. Um, so as we get higher and higher tech, there's still a problem of, of operationalizing uh, controls and, and getting it right. So how do we solve that problem? I think we're an industry yeah. in transition. And, uh, uh, you know, we also are a uh, an industry that I call a virtual corporation industry. You have uh, contractors and engineers and architects and consultants uh, and, you know, that all come together around a project, uh, and then they disband and come together around to the next project. We don't have fully integrated organizations. If we were going to, uh, you know, guarantee a level of performance, it would probably be 
much more likely that a design-build firm uh, would be willing to take that kind of a challenge on. And, and frankly, all of us, I think, are questioning you know, what are the optimal delivery models for for the for today. Uh, there's different delivery models around the world, and we're experimenting ourselves with de- design-build in certain marketplaces. But my point is, is really that when you innovate, you're going to have you take risk. You, you don't. Uh, have certainty, and you, what we're seeing is we try things, we model them, we say that you know, we think this will be the performance, and we sometimes we find they perform higher, sometimes we find that they perform less, and the next building we build will be better. And the, um, we're getting technology integration into buildings where the systems are starting to take more responsibility for managing the performance of the building, and it's not based on talent that doesn't have the skills to manage a building. So that's one area where I think we're going to see some really uh, significant change over the next decade. But it's going to take time as we as we evolve as an organ as an industry. We're not built to build uh, the same thing over and over and over again. Every project is custom. Every project has a different stakeholder base. Every project has a different community that's doing the project. So it's an it's a industry that has its strengths and weaknesses in that model. Yeah. It's true, and it, it, it's, it's also a fact that uh, buildings remain the world's largest handmade objects. And <clears throat> the fact is, unlike a car, uh, that's prototyped, and before you go into production, you've tested all these systems. For building, you have hundreds, sometimes thousands of individuals involved not only in design, but also in the construction of the pieces in very, very difficult field conditions, obviously. So so it's, a, it's an imperfect uh, environment in which to implement these things. But I do think that um, a lot of the things that you point to uh, are, are are certainly on a trajectory of, of, of improvement. And um, and uh, we're seeing things today that we could never have done uh, even 15 years ago in terms of uh, controlling environments. But you're right. Uh, every building needs to have uh, an operating manual. You have to have people know how to operate uh, these facilities because that's where, in the end, uh, they fail or they, or they succeed. Let's have our last audience question. Yes, sir. So um, building codes in the U.S. are very prescriptive, and they of, often limit innovation, particularly in sustainable buildings. So I just appreciate the panel's thoughts on this challenge. Um, we, build, we have to build the code, right? I mean, that's the lowest standard <laughs> we limit. To, yeah. Well, the good part about code is I haven't seen – I mean, in some respects, uh, they, they let us put more air in, Right. Um, they will let us, there is no minimum energy requirement in a building, thank goodness, you know, along those lines. Um, we've gotten away from plumbers worrying about waterless urinals. I mean, there's been some good technologies. Um, I think the slowness of the industry sometimes has to do with buildings are primarily also life safety components. They can't burn. They can't fall down. You have to have egress. And there's, there's a lot of things along those lines that, from a generational perspective, um, most of the time, the senior people in organizations have got a different perspective many times, and especially on the public side, isn't necessarily known as the most innovative market segment. And so I think from ours is working within the system is the best way to do it, whether it's better, smarter concrete and rebar and testing it out and having the patience to do it. But I also think it means that we have to help develop new standards because codes rely on proven industry standards, and unless we get behind standards that are near perfect and willing, and that's what LEED does, I think it's an excellent one, if we can help not just complain but physically lend our personal time to help writing new standards that then governments can adopt, whether it's the GSA, EPA, San Francisco, San Francisco Fire Department, I mean, you know, let's face it, 
operable windows in the San Francisco high-rise are extremely difficult because the fire department's trying to preserve life, which I can't argue with. But so how can we use intelligence to help them understand that there's ways to get both? It's not, whoever said it before, it's not either or, it's and. And that's how I think that we start to transform some of where we're at. And it's places like San Francisco, frankly, that sets this bellwether standard for other cities. As, as regressive or progressive as you might think this place is, um, San Francisco and even California is really viewed globally as the most responsible place in the United States to look, whether it's green technology, high-tech technology, social media, or fuel. And so I think if we all live here and our zip code is somewhere around this area, we've got an obligation not just to ourselves but to the U.S. and to the rest of the world, if they're looking here, to be as good as we can and experiment where we need to, right, um, in those kind of safe environments. You know, I think just one, one word. I think that, that recently there has been a lot of work done in codes. There's, there's the International Green Construction Code. There's, there's Cal Green. There's uh, the New York City Building Code. And on and on, there's ASHRAE 189. So a lot of that work has been done, and now we just need the uh, municipalities to adopt them. Before we wrap, I want to ask one quick question. I've seen lots of cool-looking pictures of urban agriculture, buildings with farms on them. Is that science fiction, or is that really going to happen anywhere? Is anyone? Craig Hartman? Well, I I would suggest it it is happening. It already is happening. And We're doing two very large projects here in San Francisco. One is Treasure Island. The other is Park Merced, both of which will have significant urban farming as, as a part of the operations. And these aren't uh, places, farms with fences drawn around them. These are new kinds of farms in which uh, they have a, a kind of a pedagogic role, in which they're almost like productive parks. And uh, you can walk in, you can, you can you observe these things. Uh, so that's definitely happening. Uh, we're still pushing for rooftop, but that's a little bit, out there yet. Uh, most of what we're doing with roofs are just uh, green living roofs, but um, I think that uh, there's, again, this is a cultural thing at this point, more so than it is a market-driven thing because uh, of the interest, especially, I'll say, in the Bay Area and uh, California in general, about uh, locally sourced everything. And food, of course, being the most basic one. And so I think there's a real interest in this in terms of having it right uh, near us. Our thanks to our panel today. Uh, Phil Williams is Vice President of WebCore Builders, Craig Hartman, Design Partner at SOM, David Gensler, Executive Director of Gensler, the design firm, and Michael Dean, Chief Sustainability Officer at Turner Construction. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming today. Thank you.